Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. start this morning by sharing about a film I watched recently. Uh, I haven't shared about a film for a while. I normally do like sharing about films. It's a film called The Covenant by Guy Ritchie, directed by Guy Ritchie. Anybody seen it? Nobody's seen it. Wow. Okay, this is good. I can just say what I want. So um, <laughs> it came out, yeah, it came out 2023, so it's a pretty recent film. It's on Prime. Basically, it's, um, it's about this American unit in the war in Afghanistan. And if you know anything about the war in Afghanistan, what the Americans did when they were there was they would get local people to be their interpreters for when they were going around doing the raids, whatever. And the promise was that they would give these local Afghans, they would give them asylum in America after the war ended. And the story follows this one interpreter called Ahmed, and he is interpreter for a, a unit of soldiers led by this guy, John, John Kinley, who's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, and uh, they get into an ambush, and loads of the American soldiers in this unit are killed. But the interpreter sticks with this commanding officer and helps defend them, helps them to fight in this ambush. And then, actually, as he's the only one left, he drags the John, Jake Gyllenhaal character, drags him across hills, mountains for days on end, because he gets injured, and brings him to safety to this American base. So he saves this American soldier's life. What happens is the American soldier, John Kinley, he's flown off to America. He's given the best medical treatment. He gets better. Ahmed is just left. Um, the Americans don't help him. They don't look after him. They don't, they don't give him asylum. They don't give anything. And basically, he has to go on the run because the Taliban put, uh, they put a bounty on his head. And they say, look, we are going to find this guy and we're going to kill him because he rescued and he helped an American soldier. So they do. They, they search Afghanistan. They, the whole country, they're after this huge manhunt for this guy, Ahmed, to try and find him. And he's in hiding, him and his family. Um, for months and months and months on end in hiding. And basically, the film is about how John Kinley finds out about what's going on and tries to rescue his interpreter and tries to get him. And basically, he realizes no one's going to help him. So what he does is, at great cost to himself, has to remortgage his own house. He He goes back on his own dime through a private security company, goes back to Afghanistan, and rescues him himself. But this, the film, it, I mean, it's not a feel-good film, just to throw it in there, all right? You know, it's not a kind of, I just want something to lift me up. But it has this idea of this covenant, this, these two people, this interpreter and this soldier, we've made a covenant. You help us, we will get you out to safety. And the covenant has been broken, and this guy's, no, no, we will, I will keep that covenant. I'm not going to break that promise, and that's what it's about. But amongst the film, we see Ahmed, this guy, endure incredible suffering as the Taliban try and find him, try and catch him, try and kill him. And that is what I want to talk about today. This morning, I am going to talk about suffering. (laughs) So um, yeah, this morning may not be lighthearted. It may not be tons of fun, but I think it is an important topic for us to dive into. We're going to talk about suffering. Now, most of us, I imagine, have probably never been in a situation like that Afghan interpreter, but I'm pretty sure all of us have suffered at some stage in our life. Many of us possibly suffering right now. It could be stuff to do with our job. It could be stuff to do with our family. It could be stuff to do with health, mental health. It could be finances. We've all suffered. 
And what I want to talk about today is suffering. And I want to talk about the reality of suffering. And I also want to talk about how we go through suffering well as Christians. Okay. All good? Sweet. Right. So obviously this morning is the second in our summer sermon series in Psalms. Who was here for last week? A few people. Can anybody remember what it was last week? All right, fine. Okay. Well, I'll not labor that. Okay. Um, Psalm 32, forgiveness. Just throw it in there. Anyway, um, so not taking it personally. It's me preaching. But anyway, so let's move on. This morning is Psalm 22. If someone asks next week, what Psalm did we preach on last week? What are you going to say? 22. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, if you're here. Right. Okay. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 22, one before the famous one. Not 23. Psalm 22, which is all about suffering. Uh, now, written by David, as most of the Psalms were, written during a time of suffering in David's life, probably when he was being pursued by Saul. So similarities with the film we've talked about. Now, I'm going to read it uh, shortly, um, but when I do, I want you to notice the multi-layered nature of this Psalm when we read it. Okay, so on one level, the psalm we're about to read, it talks about David's situation, David's suffering, what he was going through. It describes the stuff that was happening to him. But also at another level, this psalm also connects with God's people as a whole. Because most Christians, including us here, at some point in their lives will feel like some of the words in this psalm reflect their own experience. So it, it's about David, it's about us as believers, but on a whole other level, this psalm also describes Jesus' experience. Even though David wrote it a thousand years before Jesus, he speaks prophetically in this psalm about Jesus' suffering and death. So when we read it, have a look out and see if you notice any of the little Jesus prophecies in there. There's a good few of them if you've got your eyes open and you can see them. So we have to keep all these layers in mind. So it's, it's too simplistic for us to only ask, what does this psalm tell me about David's suffering? What does this psalm tell me about Jesus' suffering? Or, or, or what does this psalm tell me about my suffering? It talks about all three of these. And, and it, we're just going to keep our eyes open for all three of these as we read it. So we're going to read Psalm 22. I'm going to read it. It'll appear on the screen or feel free to follow along in your Bibles as well. It says this, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You're the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, I'm not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their, tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, 
a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to, to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he was once not despised or scorned, the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot help keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So there you have it. Psalm 22. And as I said at the start, I'm just going to look at two things this morning. Firstly, the reality of suffering. And secondly, how to go through suffering. And particularly, how to go through suffering well. So let's start. The reality of suffering. Now, I've probably shared this a few times before, but when I was 17, I was staying over at my, my granny's house. and I woke up the next morning and she died. Um, my sister was also staying at the same time. She was the one who raised the alarm. Um, but really, up to that point, I had never really experienced much suffering in my life up to that point. Suffering and death for me up to that point was kind of something you saw on TV, you know, something on films, but like, you know, I, I didn't have to actually experience it in real life. But that all changed as I stood there looking at my grand's dead body. And the reality was she had a stroke. It wasn't a quick death. She suffered. So, you know, I, I knew that. I knew that from talking to my sister. She was with her the whole time. So immediately, all of a sudden, it was almost like my childhood was over and I was confronted with the reality of suffering. Not on TV, not somewhere far out, no, right in front of me. People I know, people I love. I was confronted with the reality of suffering. And, and that's, that's it. Suffering is real. It is real. And as much as we try not to think about it or to hide it, it is real. And also, it's worth saying, suffering is not good. It is not good, especially the suffering where when you cry out to God for help and you feel like he doesn't hear you. Ever had that? When you, when you feel like he's forsaken you, when you feel like he doesn't answer you. And, and worst of all, when you get mocked by others for trusting in God in the midst of your suffering. And we see that here in verses 7 to 8. Not only does David feel God's not answering, but people are mocking him for even trusting in God while he's suffering. And I think the, the topic of suffering, it, it raises, it, it always raises a lot of difficult questions. Because the reality is suffering is not just some theoretical concept. You know, it's real, it's emotive, and it gets to the core of who we are. It really gets under our skin. And you know, when we, when we think of our own suffering, or when we think of the suffering of others, or even suffering around the world, it can often make us ask, where is God in this? You know, God, what are you doing? Or we can ask, you know, how can I believe in a good God in the face of all this suffering? It can make us ask those questions. 
And when we're faced with such difficult questions, there's a few mistakes we can make. There's a few rabbit holes that we can go down that actually really aren't very helpful for us as believers. Now, first thing, first mistake we can make when faced with suffering is we can just reject the idea of God altogether. You know, we, reasoning goes, if there was a God, he would stop this suffering. Suffering's not stopped, therefore there must not be a God. You know, and that, essentially, that's the reasoning, okay? You can just end up rejecting the idea of God altogether. I was talking to one of my neighbors a couple of months ago. I asked, oh, do you have a faith? And he says, ah, I used to, but then, you know, I've had a lot of bad stuff happen in my life. And that was his answer, why he doesn't have a faith. I've, I've had suffering, I've had bad stuff. God mustn't, that was his answer. And for a lot of people, I think that's the reality. But the reality is, the belief that suffering is not right, it's not the way things should be, that belief actually comes from God. Yale professor uh, of theology, Miroslav Wolf, puts it this way. He says, the expectation that the world should be a hospitable place with no devastating mishaps is tied to the belief that the world ought to be constituted in a certain way. And the belief, as distinct from the belief that the world just is what it is, is itself tied to the notion of a creator. And that brings us to God. It is God who makes possible our protest. God is both the ground of the protest and its target. Almost paradoxically, we protest with God against God. So next time someone says, how can God allow suffering? You can be like, well, I think you're using God to protest against God. Maybe don't. That might get you a slap. But it's true, though. The belief that suffering is not right, it is not the way things should be, actually originates. It comes from, if you trace it back, it comes from God. It comes from God. Okay? So that's the first mistake we can make, is to reject the idea of altogether, which I'm just going to say, like, actually, that doesn't make sense. Secondly, if we, if we don't reject the idea of God altogether when faced with suffering, another mistake we can make is to try to justify and defend God. Perhaps by saying something like, well, if God allows it to happen, then there must be something good in this situation. Now, this is one of the many tensions we live in. Now, we know, we know that God is love and that he is good, and that he is with us in the midst of our suffering. But we also know that God is all-powerful, and that he could end any kind of suffering in an instant. That's a real tension, isn't it? How do you hold those two things together? Now, when faced with this tension, Miroslav Volf, again, I'm just going to quote him this time again, he says, he draws the following conclusion. He says, I've not been able to bring myself to try to defend God against the charge of impotence or lack of care with regard to horrendous evil. Why does the omnipotent and loving God not always prevent suffering? I don't know, he says. If I knew, I could justify God, but I can't. That's why I am still disturbed by the God to whom I am so immensely attracted and who won't let go of me. And I think, you know, even if a, a distinguished, well-respected Yale professor of theology doesn't have an easy answer as to why a loving and almighty God doesn't always stop suffering, then I think we have permission 
to not have the answer to that too. We have permission to live in the tension of holding both of those things together in tension. We have permission to do that too. That's okay, to hold those both in tension, to not have the like, oh yes, this is the cookie cutter answer. Thirdly, another mistake we can make when suffering comes our way is we can be too quick to extract positive meaning out of suffering. Now, it's absolutely true. In many ways, we can grow through trials and sufferings, especially as believers. I mean, we've got Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is true. Okay? Suffering can make us more compassionate to others. It can bring us closer to God. It can do all of these things. All true. But there are some things in life that can just seem to resist being given a positive meaning. You know, you, you hear something on TV of, of like a, I don't know, like a four or five-year-old kid dies tragically. You think, ah, what, what, what's happening there? Like any positive meaning we try to give something like that almost seems to take away from its awfulness. So we need to be careful that in our search for consolation, we don't reach for cheap meaning that takes away from the suffering that's being suffered. Sometimes we see something, we just gotta say, that is awful. And that's all we say. That's awful. And maybe God does reveal it to us sometimes, but sometimes you just gotta say, that's horrendous, and that is it. So that's the reality of suffering and some mistakes we can make when we go through suffering. But I just want to talk secondly about how we go through suffering well, okay? So we've moved to, from, from the reality of it to how we go through it well. Now, some of you may know Max, uh, our son, had chicken pox this week. Uh, so he all covered in spots, and he was off school. And uh, I think it was Tuesday night, he was particularly itchy. And he had one really, really itchy chicken is it a chicken pock? Singular? Is that? I don't even know. But anyway, he had one here on his head. And he's going to bed and he just can't sleep. He can't get any relief from this chicken pock. He's all the time and he just can't get him to sleep. So what I did was I got an elaborate contraption of extension leads and various things. And I got a fan. You know, a fan? Those things we used in June, you know, that we don't need in July. <laughs> You know, like none of them are working. You know, we don't need them now. Yeah, yeah remember that? The things you put in the attic now, we don't need them. The summer's over. Yeah, I got a fan and I got it and put it in his bed, put it on full right next to his head, <laughs> about this far from his head. And he was like, ah, oh, yes, perfect. And that was the only thing that could give him relief from this chicken pox on his head. And he went to sleep with the fan full blast on his head. We did turn it off eventually. There is some suffering in life that can be alleviated by a fan. <laughs> there is some suffering in life that can be alleviated by easy fixes. There's a lot of suffering that needs a bit more than a fan. And what David's talking about in the passage here is suffering that takes more than an easy fix. So what does David do to go through this suffering well? Well, he does three things. He remembers, he prays, and he looks to the future with praise. Okay, so let's look firstly. David remembers, he remembers what God has done for him and for the people of Israel in the past. Really simple thing. He reminds himself of times when God did answer, when God did deliver, and when God did help. Look at verses four to five. David says this, 
in you, God, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So this is what David does. He remembers at times God has delivered. He also encourages himself. He lifts his eyes from his circumstances. He reminds himself of the truths about God that he can't see at this point, but he knows are true. A number of weeks ago, Elizabeth came to the front after one of the preaches and encouraged us to recall our relationship history with God. It's something she does in her marriage counseling, but say, Recall our relationship history with God. Recall all the times God's come through for you. Recall all those answered prayers. Recall all those times when God's done something. You're like, wow, bring them to mind. They help in times of suffering. Second thing that helps, which David does, is he turns to God and he addresses God directly. David doesn't turn his back on God in his anger. Instead, he speaks to God. He prays. We see that verse 9 Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. He prays to God. He's honest with God about where he's at. And then verse 19, he prays again. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You're my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. He goes to God. And I just want to ask us, and I'm asking myself the same thing. When suffering comes, how quickly do we go to God? Or is he like, you know, number six on the list? Well, I'll try to sort it myself first. Then I'll talk to my friends. Then I'll phone my mom. Then I'll phone my dad. And if none of them can sort it, I will phone God. You know, how quickly do we go to God with our suffering? David prays because he knows that ultimately God is the only one who can deliver him from his present suffering. And he's the only one who can deliver him from suffering in general. It's kind of like in, in, with, with Peter in John 6, when Jesus asked the 12 disciples, loads of people leave, and he asked, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter responds, Lord, like, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter's like, where would we go? In other words, there's no answer. There's no hope. There's no help in suffering apart from God. Third thing David does is he looks to the future with praise. Now, notice the first part of the psalm. The first part of the psalm is pretty bleak. It's pretty depressing. But look at the second part of the psalm. I mean, it's all about praise, proclaiming God's goodness, proclaiming his power, proclaiming the hope there is in him, and telling everyone about God's faithfulness. Now, it isn't clear, and I find this interesting, it isn't clear whether this praise comes as a response after David has been delivered from this suffering or whether David is still in the midst of the suffering while he's praising. We don't know. But I think that uncertainty probably gives us a hint that in a way both are true. We can look towards our ultimate deliverance from suffering and praise and worship God even while we are suffering. And then David paints this beautiful picture of the future, verses 26 to 31. I'm going to read it again because it really does. Oh, it's just heartwarming stuff. This is this. There's this day going to come when the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. 
May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Isn't that good? They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people, yet even unborn, he has done it. Who's the he? Say it louder, people. Jesus. If I ever ask a question, what is the answer always? Yes, it's always Jesus, unless, like, I don't know, I'm not feeling well or something. Yeah. Yes, Psalm 22. Yes. But it's Jesus. That's who David is prophesying about. You know, If I could go back in time to a point in history, I mean, there's a few points around the life of Jesus I'd love to go to, but one of the points I would love to go back to, like when, you know, somebody invents a time machine or something, I would love to go back to when those two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're like, they can't really get their heads around what's happened. Jesus died, and they're just chatting about it. And then this guy appears to them, and they're like, yeah, Jesus has died. We're not sure why. And they don't realize that the guy who's there, it is Jesus. And Jesus is like, come on, guys, it's me. And they're like, whoa. And, uh, and then Jesus, basically, I don't know if there was the whoa. Okay, Stephen, that's fine. But um, I've put that in. But you get what I mean. Anyway, but Jesus then says this in Luke 24, beginning with, the, with Moses and all the prophets. He begins to explain to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I would love to go back there with a dictaphone and just record what Jesus said about himself in explaining all the Old Testament scriptures. And I'll be honest, I am certain in that recording, you would hear him explain Psalm 22. I am certain you'd hear him explain this because this psalm prophesies so clearly about Jesus' suffering and death. One of the commentaries I was reading just calls this the psalm of the cross. That's the title it gives it. You look at verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus says on the cross, isn't it? Then verse eight says, let the Lord rescue him. That's what the people shout out at Jesus. Matthew 27, ah, yeah, let God rescue him. And then verses 14 to 18. I mean, this is, verse 14, it's just the the perfect description of how someone dies on the cross when you know what crucifixion was like. It says this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. When you were crucified, your bones did get out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. When you were crucified, you'd lost so much blood from the, from the flogging. Your heart had to beat faster to keep up. Bum, 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 bum. Which explains this. Turned to wax, melted within me. That's a way of describing that. Verse 15. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. When you were crucified, dehydration set in pretty quickly because of the amount of blood you had lost. That's what's being described there. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Where did that happen? It happened at the cross. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Where did that happen? That's the soldiers at the cross. David wrote this a thousand years 
before Jesus. We know that absolute fact. And this is what he wrote. And you might be sitting here thinking, okay, so what, Andy? That's cool. That's nice for, you know, you Bible nerds. What does this mean for me? Well, the reality is, first thing it means is when you add up all the prophecies in the Old Testament, it is the best evidence there is that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, it's almost foolproof. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. But second thing it says is that Jesus' death, it was no accident. Jesus' death was planned before the dawn of time, and it was prophesied about thousands of years beforehand. Why? Because it would be the centerpiece of God's plan of redemption, his plan to make this world right again. And the other thing I think it means is Jesus knows what it is to suffer. You can't say, hey, you've never experienced suffering, Jesus. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He didn't avoid it, but instead he chose it for our sake. God decided that the best way to demonstrate his love for humanity was to suffer. Many of you know Timothy Keller, the American pastor, theologian, writer, died back in May. Uh, And a week before he died, he had cancer. Um, A week before he died, in the midst of suffering with cancer, he tweeted this. He said this, We don't know what the reason God allows suffering is, but we do know what the reason God allows suffering isn't. It isn't because he doesn't love or care for us. He proved that through Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. I want us to take communion now as we start back to worship because I think this is the perfect moment for us to remember what Jesus did by dying on the cross.